Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is All of It. I'm Allison Stewart. Happy New Year's Eve. As we reflect back on 2021, it is fair to say we have all in some way, big or small, been forced to be resilient. To take a look at the circumstances, feel our feelings, and make the decision to move on or through or around the obstacles in front of us. It has not been easy or fun, and for many, it's been just so hard. This brings us to this hour about working through the hard stuff. First up, playwright Sarah Rule. From a distance, the last decade of Sarah Rule's life reads like a playbook in success. She was nominated for a Tony, was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize for a second time. She started teaching at Yale, had three adorable kids and a kind, smart doctor husband. When you get up close to her life, as we are allowed to do by reading her new memoir, we can see that Sarah has been struggling with serious health issues, as have her children. She wasn't sure how her health would affect her family and the career she worked so hard to build. And if you got up really close to her, physically, you would likely observe that Sarah's face was still on one side. Paralyzed by Bell's palsy, a mysterious neurological issue that afflicted her immediately after the difficult birth of her twins. Hope and William spent their first week of life in the NICU as Sarah began to digest her new reality. In her new book called Smile, The Story of a Face, Sarah writes, 10 years ago, my smile walked off my face and wandered out in the world. This is the story of my asking it to come back. This is a story of how I learned to make my way when my body stopped obeying my heart. Here's my conversation with Sarah Rule. I understand your husband actually encouraged you to write this book and you weren't so sure. What did he say (laughs) that convinced you? He did. I. He said, you usually write about things that you think about all the time or that give you pain. And this you think about all the time and gives you <laughs> a lot of sorrow and pain. Why aren't you writing about it? And I kind of said, oh, it's too private. Um, but then I took a crack at it and it turned out I had a lot to say. Did it feel good once you started writing? Did it feel difficult? How did it feel? It was actually enormously cathartic. I think I hadn't written about Bell's palsy because it felt more sort of disappointing and chronic than it felt sort of tragic or like it had some kind of, you know, miracle cure or apotheosis. But just trying to change the story I was telling myself about my face was immensely healing. As you began researching Bell's palsy, this this dysfunction of the nerve in the face that leads to paralysis or weakness, as you started to research it, what were you looking for? What questions did you want answered? So 
At first, I didn't research it at all. I was I I, I tucked everything for into a deep form of denial, thinking if I didn't talk about it or think about it or read about it, it would just simply go away, which is what Bell's palsy does for a vast majority of people who suffer with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually you'll get better in three months without doing anything or with steroids. But in my case, I was a long hauler and they don't really know why that's the case for some people. Um, and the neurologist told me that or the one I saw initially said, if I didn't get better after six months, I wouldn't get better at all. And nothing I could do would change that, except for maybe experimental neurosurgery. So when I wasn't better after six months, um, I went into, I guess you could call it a pretty profound depression. You know, I'm, I'm curious about the lack of clarity on it, because as mm-hmm. you said, there's there's not a lot of information. You don't know when it might stop. You don't know how necessarily you want to treat it. When you get into that book, we'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm curious what that lack of information and lack of clarity, what did it bring out in you? As a patient, I think it makes you feel incredibly helpless and you feel reliant on experts, but a lot of experts too sort of say, oh, it's idiopathic, meaning we don't know why it happens and we don't know how to cure it. So it might be viral. It might be sometimes caused by Lyme disease. Uh, a lot of women get it postpartum or in their third trimester, but they haven't really sufficiently figured out the correlation mm-hmm. with pregnancy. And when you're told you'll most likely get better in three months or not at all. And meanwhile, you can't smile, you can't chew properly or speak properly or make facial expressions. Um, it's a pretty daunting thing to hear. Of all the answers that you found or research that you found once you really did start thinking about it or talking to medical professionals, what did you know was the piece of information that, given what you know about yourself and your personality, was going to give you the hardest time? I think the hardest thing for me had to do with facial expressions, had to do with using my face as a kind of canvas to reflect back other people's emotions. And because I'm a playwright and I'm in the theater, I'm keenly aware of how the face creates a sense of emotion and, and empathy. And so having these two little twins who I desperately wanted to smile at to communicate love and joy to them, I was deeply frustrated that I couldn't do that. My my guest is Sarah Rule. The name of the book is Smile, the Story of a Face. As you're writing in the book, you give us a little bit of history of Bell's Palsy, who it was named for. Why did you want the reader to know the origin I'm always interested in etymology and origin stories. And and Sir Charles Bell sort of fascinated me because he was a bizarre character and, um, uh, you know, was in a way the father of modern neurology uh, and a failure at at many things. But he but he did give us his name, um, Bell, to Bell's palsy. And I, I thought it was interesting when interns are rounding, sometimes they learn Um, about Hmm. bells through um, a mnemonic device like ding dong, ding dong bell. So if you look like you've had a stroke, the differential diagnosis is bell's palsy. So if if you're rounding and and another doctor says ding dong, you think, oh, bell, bell's palsy. It was actually, I believe it was a lactation consultant who first noticed it, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. So the lactation consultant was teaching me, I think, something called the football hold, which is where you hold both babies. You know, I was, I was trying to learn to breastfeed two on one 
at one go. Mm-hmm. Um, and the was, you know, something God bless you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, you know, I was lying in bed doing that with the twins and sort of exhausted. And, and she said to me, your face looks a little droopy. And I kind of thought, excuse me. And I think mm-hmm. I made some joke like, well, I'm Irish, you know, thinking about, you know, my great uncles when they got drunk, you know, their eyes looked a little droopy. And she said, that's not what I mean. Look in the mirror. And I looked in the mirror and, you know, my entire left side had totally fallen down and I couldn't move it at all. And I thought I might have had a stroke, although my mother had had Bell's palsy. So in the back of my mind, I thought, well, this is either a stroke or Bell's palsy. And then the next thought was? <laughs> I, can I swear on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a writer. Can you think of a flowery way to say it? <laughs> uh, Oh, darn. Oh, shoot. <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it's in you were laughing about it now. But yeah. in the book, you know, it's it you had this is all happening after a difficult pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And you've given birth to these twins, Hope and William, who then had medical issues and had to be rushed back into the NICU as you're getting ready to leave. So you went through mm-hmm. a lot of difficulty and trauma in this really short window. There was a lot going on at one time. I mean, the twins were born healthy, which was miraculous because I had something called cholestasis of the liver where your bile is leaking into your bloodstream and it can kill the babies. So it was nonstop itching, bed rest, worried that the babies wouldn't be all right. So, you know, the birth, it was miraculous. Mm -hmm. You know, they were fine. They were healthy. And then suddenly I had Bell's palsy and then the twins were rushed to the NICU for breathing episodes and Suddenly there I was in the NICU and people would say, you know, what are your babies named? And I would say, William and Ho, because I couldn't say my piece um, from the Bell's palsy. And they'd be like, excuse me, Ho, did you say Ho? And I was like, no, Hope, Hope. Um, you know, so there's a lot going on at one time. Uh, and I, I think for a long time, I was just getting through it all. And it mm. took me a really long time to, to think about writing it all down. Yeah, you write in the book. As <laughs> if people are like, really? I you think I named my daughter Ho? Really? <laughs> <laughs> my guest yeah. is Sarah Rule. The name of the book is Smile, the Story of a Face. At what point did your skills as a writer, as an observer of nature, kick in? And and were these skills useful to you in any way as you were learning to live with Bell's palsy? They were useful. I think the moment they became not useful was when I retreated so far into the observer role Mm. that I didn't feel quite embodied, to be honest, because I think as a writer, it's natural for me to observe. It's natural for me to be at a party and stand in the corner and watch what other people are doing and secretly write down dialogue in my head. I mean, not to make anyone worried, but it is a, a thing that writers do. And I think when I really felt I couldn't participate socially because I couldn't mirror social expressions, I retreated too far into that position. And I I did write a a book of essays at the time called 100 Essays I Don't Have Time to Write, where I was writing kind of these little micro essays, which felt like all I had, had time for when the twins were little and when I was going through all of this. And that was a way to keep my mind alert and active when I was pretty exhausted all the time. In the book, there are photos. You chose to include photos from various stages. 
uh, in the, that 10 years, what went into the decision to include photos? Such a good question. I think, I mean, I really wanted to include the one where my children vomit on the floor and then they're just like looking at it, sitting in a high chair. <laughs> that just felt important. But in terms of my face, there's something about Bell's palsy where language fails. Um, and so in a way, the whole book is a way to get some language around it. But I also felt like showing the reader what my face looked like, what it looked like when I tried to smile at a point, what my face looks like now uh, felt part of the journey somehow. And you're in a position where you have to have your photo taken mm -hmm. on more than one instance. Um, how did you decide just, I mean, you explain how you, you handle it externally. How did you decide you were going to handle that emotionally, internally, that someone was going to yell at you, smile on a, <laughs> on a red carpet? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of amazing because I had just been nominated for a Tony Award and I thought, oh, I'm not going to this event. But my agent said, oh, you should go, you should go, you should celebrate. And, you know, indeed, I was standing there and this, this phalanx of photographers were like, smile. And I tried to smile and one of them said, what's wrong with you? Can't you smile for your Tony Award? And I said, actually, I can't. My face is paralyzed. And, and I kind of felt awful for him because it put him in such an awkward position. Um, and anyway, he took my picture, which I, I disliked. And after that, I, I think I tried to avoid cameras as much as possible. Or when I did encounter them, I tried some kind of workaround. You know, I tried to be photographed from the side. Uh, and I feel like part of the journey of writing the book was to try to be done with the workaround. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, to try to be done saying, everything's fine. <laughs> You know, from a certain angle, everything's fine. And to kind of admit, you know, actually things are not quite fine. And that's all right, too. The name of the book is Smile, the Story of a Face. My guest this hour is Sarah Rule. We'll have more with Sarah after a quick break. This is all of it. This is all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. My guest this hour is Sarah Rule. The name of her new book is Smile, the Story of a Face. Sarah takes us into her life for a period of time when she had Bell's palsy and while she also had to be a mom and a playwright and a teacher and a wife and a family member. Uh, Sarah, you know, in the book, you really investigate what a smile read means. I want to read this one little passage. I never specifically prized my smile, but now I realize I used to have a rather nice one, symmetrical and full. I began to feel what a loss it was not to be able to smile at strangers, to indicate permission, affinity, or understanding. I realized how we count on that subtle coding at least a hundred times a day. Was there one particular instance that really stands out to you when you thought, I could really use my smile right now? Mm. I remember being at a work meeting uh, shortly after the twins were born, and it was with a you know fairly high up film producer, and he had flashing white teeth and an enormous sort of Cheshire cat smile, and I just couldn't give it back to him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I could not give it back to him. And so I just tried to sort of murmur and flail my arms around to, to indicate that I was listening, that I was engaged, that I was friendly. Uh, I, I think just also feeling like I was giving off a lack of friendliness 
hurt my feelings since I'm from the Midwest. (laughs) (laughs) Smile to indicate friendliness. It's interesting you should say that because the other day, we're all wearing masks now and we're not able to use our faces to telegraph feeling or emotion. I said to somebody, I'm smiling under here Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I, I, my yeah. eyes must have looked kind of intense and crazy. And with a smile, it probably looked a little less crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, what guidance can you offer people who are feeling cut off and not, mm-hmm. or maybe feeling not connected because of masks? I know that's a lot mm-hmm. to ask of you, but I'm curious if you have any guidance. No, I think it's really interesting. I think being direct, what you did is great, saying I'm smiling under my mask. And sometimes I would do that when I met new students at Yale because they felt like the most vulnerable people I was meeting. I wanted them not to think I was showing disapproval over their work. So I would be direct and say, I might look aloof or opaque because I have Bell's palsy, but I am so loving your work right now. And I just wanted you to know that. Um, I think also using the other the other amazing tools we have, the voice to indicate that you're trying to make a connection, gesture, the eyes. I think it's incredible that other senses take over when, um, you know, when we're masked or when we have something taken away. You get into the gender politics of smiling a little bit. There's a, I'm going to read a passage. My very first week in New York City in my early 20s, I smiled at a man sitting across from me on the subway who took it as an invitation to come sit next to me. He then put his other earbud from his headset over my ear, saying I had to listen to the song. I obliged, my head tilted towards him. Once I smiled at him, I felt it was too late to say no. My smile had given permission. I remembered an old woman across from me looking at me and shaking her head. There's a complex set of unspoken rules guiding women's smiles in public, whether and how long she smiles at night, during the day, at strangers, in new neighborhoods, on her block, in boardrooms, in banks. Her smile can be protective, a talisman, something to withhold or bestow. Did you get a sense of why women smile a lot and why certain people feel compelled to tell them to smile? I do think it has to do with power with power differentials, you know, that one person smooths over troubles and the other person has the luxury of not doing that. For example, I can't imagine walking down the street and saying to a man, why the worried face? Smile, what's wrong with you? You know, thinking too hard. I can't tell you the number of times that's happened to me, you know, before I had Bill's palsy. Um, and it's, it's an odd intrusion into the internal life of another person. And I do think women are asked to smile through hard work situations all the time, you know, sort of cover up their feelings and, and smile through it. I've definitely seen women be told that in the theater world. And I think it's an even more complex, um, burden for women of color. Uh, and I do think it has to do with power. My guest is Sarah Rule. The name of the book is Smile, the Story of a Face. We got an unsolicited tweet from Dr. Sandra Chang. said, thanks for sharing your story. As a caregiver for a child with a neurological condition, your story about a doctor's prognosis resonates with me. There really is a lot more to learn about brain conditions. And mm-hmm. in the book, I'm, I'm so glad that this is helping someone mm-hmm. and many people, I'm sure, And in the book, we really follow you as you deal with some very difficult and treacherous territory within the medical field. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I don't want to get into the exact details, but you you get some bad advice. You get you come oh. up against some people who are somewhat unfeeling, don't understand narrative medicine in any way. What what would you tell someone who is dealing with something like this when it comes to dealing with medical professionals, obviously many of whom are trying their best? Um, would it be helpful for me to read a teeny passage about that? Oh, that would be wonderful. Um, okay. Let's see. I listened for way too long to the wrong story about my face. I listened to a neurological expert who said that after six months, my nerves would no longer grow and that it didn't matter if I did anything to help my face. He turned out to be wrong on both counts. It's not uncommon for women to listen to and believe the wrong stories about their faces. Not only was I listening to the wrong narrative, I was writing the wrong narrative about the illness inside my own mind, a narrative full of shame and blame. It took me 10 years not only to find the right experts, but to trust myself as the expert of my own story. As a writer, I should have been aware that the shape of a story can make things worse. It took me a decade to change the narrative about my face or to leave the story alone, to let the muscles be merely the muscles on my face and to use my ability to make up stories in the service of making up other different stories. And I guess I read that passage because I think there can be shame um, around these kinds of conditions that cause you to not reach out. So I guess my advice would be to keep reaching out to other professionals until you find one you really connect with who can give you a fuller picture and to keep trying things, especially things that can't hurt. Um, in my case, acupuncture helped, physical therapy helped. I was told that they wouldn't help, but they did. And in terms of the tweet that came from, from that doctor, um, my heart goes out to you, first of all, um, and also she said, there are a lot of things about the brain that we don't know. And I think people are only now learning about neuroplasticity mm -hmm. and what's going on with mirror neurons. I, I certainly can't speak to it because I'm no expert, but I think we are learning. And, and so people shouldn't give up. I think there's, you know, a point at which you want to accept your condition. I think acceptance is really important, but, it, but that's different from losing hope. We got another tweet from someone named Joy. I love hearing Sarah Rule validate all the feelings I had when I got Bell's palsy. I was a young actor on my first union show and I couldn't speak properly. Recovered mm -hmm. in two or three months, but thought I'd have to change my life plan for a while. Mm -hmm. How does that resonate with you? I mean, yes. I mean, for some professions, it's sort of, it's almost disqualifying. It's horrible. I, our stages don't make room for asymmetrical people and that needs to change. And my heart goes out to that reader too. And there, there were moments where I thought, well, God, at least I'm a writer. Um, a face is an actor's instrument. It, it, it's, I'm sure it was terrifying. What impact did it have on your professional life? I think it probably didn't have a lot of impact mm -hmm. except for the impact it had on my psyche, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> which then in turn has an impact on one's professional life, you know. There's a little feedback loop there. What would you want someone to know, just the average person who wants to be helpful, wants to be open, perhaps has a really genuine, kind curiosity and wants to know more? What do you want them to know about how to approach someone maybe who has Bell's palsy or something similar? 
Well, it's interesting. A lot of my friends say that now that they've read the book, they said, God, I'm so sorry. I didn't know what you were going through. I would have done more. And I said, well, it was exactly my intention that you didn't know what I was going through. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was trying to have a plucky, no-nonsense attitude about it and not let people know how I was feeling. So I guess just the simple, how are you? How are you you doing with the whole Bell's palsy thing can be a helpful opening because I think also – even though it's written right on your face, there's a kind of taboo where people think you're not supposed to talk about it. So allowing an entry point that's neutral for a person. And also my husband was so unconditionally accepting of my face. And so I guess I would say if you have a partner with Bell's palsy, um, telling them you love them, telling them you love how they look, telling them that you find them beautiful, Uh, I mean, maybe that's obvious, but it's a place to start. My guest is Sarah Rules. The name of Sarah Rules, excuse me, the name of the book is Smile, the Story of a Face. I also, I don't want to gloss over it. You have these three kids under five (laughs) twins, Mm -hmm. and you have a chapter when the title says, Can You Have Postpartum Depression Two Years After Having Babies? (laughs) (laughs) Were, Were you able to tell what was grief about your face, about the Bell's palsy? where that ended or started with in terms of postpartum difficulties or are they just all married together for you they were all a, a lovely <laughs> stew concoction. <laughs> a concoction i couldn't tell them apart and i think it, it kept me from getting um treated for depression because i kept thinking oh as soon as i sleep through the night i'll be okay or as soon as the bell's palsy clears up i'll be okay and then it turned out i had celiac disease so i thought well as soon as that as soon as i figured that out i'll be okay as soon as the kids start kindergarten, I'll, I'll have more time for my writing and then I'll be okay. But um, there was sort of a moment where the floor dropped out and I just wasn't okay. And I'm so glad you're doing this, um, you know, this this this, uh, this moment on Bell's, uh, on Bell's palsy and postpartum depression, because I just don't think we screen for postpartum depression enough in this country. There are other countries where it's just part of the whole protocol. Uh, and as soon as I got treatment for it, I was a lot better. There's a moment you write, having decided not to hide my face or hide from my face anymore. What made you stop hiding? It's funny. I had lunch with someone named Jonathan Kalb, who's a wonderful dramaturg and wrote beautifully about his experience in the New Yorker. And when I wrote the book, I was brave enough to have lunch with him to talk to him about his experience. And there was something about meeting with someone who'd been through it that gave me a lot more bravery. And he talked about almost coming out uh, with the face, you know, with with um, with the Bell's palsy that hadn't quite resolved and trying to make expressions, even if you thought they made you look strange. You know, I think for a long time, I would try to keep a placid, neutral expression because I thought smiling um, too deeply looked like a grimace, so I just wouldn't attempt it. There was something about that lunch, for instance, that made me feel like I will show my face. To people. I won't look away from them when I laugh. I will engage in a more direct way. Um, it was. It's important to find others, I think. I mean, it seems, seems obvious, but it took me probably, you know, nine, ten years to reach out to someone else who had unresolved Bell's palsy. That was my conversation with Sarah Rule. Smile, the story of a face, one of my picks for all of it interviews that reflect on what a lot of us were feeling in 2021. 
Alice and Russell's debut album quietly became one of the most talked about and revered works of the year. A talented musician who took her pain and made it into something moving and beautiful. We'll hear from Alice and Russell next. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. 